Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 154, Black Politics and Partisanship in Late 19th Century Boston. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm talking to historian Millington Burgesson Lockwood about his book, Race Over Party, about the evolution of partisanship and political loyalty among Boston's African-American community. It goes from just after the Civil War until the dawn of the 20th century. It was a period that at first seemed to hold a lot of promise for political and economic advancement for African-Americans, but it ended with the rise of lynching and codified Jim Crow laws in the South. It was also a period that began with near-universal support for Lincoln's Republican Party among African-Americans, with Frederick Douglass commenting, The Republican Party is the ship, and all else is the sea. However, after decades of setbacks and roadblocks on the path of progress, many began to question their support of the GOP, and some tried to forge a new, nonpartisan path to black advancement. Dr. Bergeson Lockwood will tell us how the movement developed and whether it ultimately achieved its goals. We have an extensive author interview this week, so we're skipping the Boston Book Club. But before we get to that, it's time for this week's upcoming historical event. This week, we're featuring another Charter Day event from the Partnership of Historic Bostons. We featured another one of their events a few weeks ago, but as a reminder, the Partnership is a local group focusing on the historical relationship between Boston, Massachusetts and Boston, Lincolnshire. Charter Day is celebrated on September 7th, commemorating the day in 1630 when Boston, Dorchester, and Watertown were all officially named. The Partnership has a series of lectures and walking tours throughout September and October as part of their celebration, and you can find out more about that at historicbostons.org. One of the last events in this year's series is a talk by Peter Drummy of the Massachusetts Historical Society on October 23rd called Puritans in Print, Historiography of the Puritans in Literature. I've seen Drummy present a few times at MHS on topics from the relationship between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson to the legacy of Abraham Lincoln in Boston. So this should be an event to look forward to. Here's how the partnership describes this one. From the 1630s to the 1930s, the Puritans were stigmatized and chastised in literature as dour, joyless, and oppressing. H.L. Mencken's epigram, Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy, summarizes much of the first 300 years of Puritan historiography. But against the background of the Great War, Depression, and Prohibition, the heavens began to open and Puritan society was examined in a new light. In 1930, historian S.E. Morrison wrote, My attitude toward 17th century Puritanism has passed through scorn and boredom to a warm interest and respect. How did the literary portrayal of Puritans change, and how does that change help us understand our national history? Note that even though Mr. Drummy works at the Mass Historical Society, that's not where the talk's being held. It'll be held in the Blue Sky Lounge in Commons at Suffolk Law School at 6 p.m. on Wednesday, October 23rd. Advanced registration is required, and while admission is free, donations are deeply appreciated. We'll have the link you need in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 154. I'm about to play my interview with Millington Burgess and Lockwood, and when I do, consider whether conversations like this are worth even $2 a month to you. While podcasts are free to listen to, making them costs real money. We enjoy doing the research and writing that goes into every episode, so if you enjoy listening to them, I hope you'll consider offsetting the cost of making Hub History by supporting us on Patreon. 
Just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support link. And if you already support the show, thank you very much. We appreciate each and every one of you. Now it's time for this week's interview. Dr. Millington W. Bergeson Lockwood is a historian of race, law, and politics in the 19th century. Last year, he published a book called Race Over Party, Black Politics and Partisanship in Late 19th Century Boston. It's an era and a topic that I know embarrassingly little about, so I was glad when he agreed to call in and talk about his work, even though there was a five-hour time zone difference between us. Dr. Bergeson Lockwood, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So first of all, just as an aside for our listeners, you're joining us from Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So uh, first of all, congratulations on being our furthest podcast guest. Uh, do you mind if I ask what took you there? Um, sure. So I'm here with my family doing some uh, international development work um, in the Congo. And before the DRC, where was home for you? We've traveled around. I'm from Washington, D.C. originally. But we were in uh, Lilongwe, Malawi before this. So that's where I actually um, did a lot of the final writing of, of Race Over Party, living in Lilongwe, Malawi. Generally, Africa has been home for the last five years or so. So as the, the subtitle of the book indicates, it's about black politics and partisanship in Boston. And Correct. it focuses on the, the time period from right after the Civil War through the turn of the 20th century. So there are there seem to be three elements that make the book really unique. It's set in that Reconstruction era. It looks at politics in the African-American community, and it focuses on the city of Boston. So of those three things, which one hooked you first? You can't really tell the story of one without, without the other. Like I really came to it thinking about Boston and the way that Boston's African-American history had been told as mostly a, a pre-Civil War story. I think we um, we talk a lot about um, the abolition story and the uh, protection of fugitive slaves and this sort of triumphant march of the 54th Massachusetts into battle. I mean, even if you think about the way that public history is displayed in the city, that's very much the narrative. It's about this sort of hard fought struggle to end slavery that is sort of that culminates in this in this um, Civil War story. I was a, a student of that story, had really spent a lot of time with that history, and just became very, the more and more I learned about the history of Reconstruction, I was really dissatisfied with the, the widely available history of, of Boston sort of after the Civil War. And that the Reconstruction story we're typically told is very much a, a a Southern-centered story for, I think, you know, for, for obvious and justifiable reasons. But I felt that there was a, a Northern story to be told and that there was, that, that the story of black politics in Boston didn't end with, with the Civil War and didn't, it didn't end with the end of slavery, but that a lot of these same actors um, and their descendants continue to, to be involved in, in similar causes for racial justice. And, and as I explored that story, this larger question of um, politics and partisanship um, started to come together. So I'm excited. I was excited to be able to, to, to tell this story. I think, um, I think it's, a, it's a unique story that I think adds a, a new sort of valence to the way that we understand Reconstruction and understand black politics in as far as it's connected to sort of formal structures of party politics. It's an era in our city's history, history that I know 
little about to the extent that reconstruction period comes up at all it, it is very much featured as a, a southern story even new works like uh, uh second founding by eric phone are very much focus on that that southern story so as somebody who has spent a lot of time ab- abroad and before that grew up in dc how did you come to focus on the boston story during that period i did my undergraduate degree at boston college ah. and during that time um, I was a African American studies student and spent a lot of time thinking and writing about um, the black community there um, in the antebellum era. And when I went on to do my graduate studies, I was drawn sort of back to Boston, but wanted to tell a, a different story. I think I, as, a, as I was in graduate school, I started to find myself being more of a, a, a student of, of the Reconstruction era rather than the antebellum era. And as I started to get more and more into the literature of Reconstruction, I, I wasn't finding the, the, this Northern story. And, this, and so in an attempt to try to tell this story, I came back to Boston because it does loom so large in the pre-Civil War history. Um, you know, it's a site of this sort of, you know, amazing and, uh, and powerful black activism to end slavery Yet it's a it's a place that almost falls out completely in the in the postbellum narrative. I was I had a hunch that there was that there was more going on there than 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 had been widely told. So um, that's that's really what drove me back to Boston. We're going to get into that that sort of postbellum Reconstruction era, and we're going to be talking about the political parties, the major political parties in America. So I was hoping you could take just a second to. Can you just tell us where the Democratic and Republican parties stood on issues of race in the the period immediately after the Civil War? Uh, sure. I mean the 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 history of the Republican Party during this period is is as the party of um, of Lincoln, as the party of Northern Union, um, as the party of you know ostensibly Black civil rights, although that changes over the, the course of the nineteenth century, and the the Democratic Party becomes the the party of of uh, the party of secession, right? The party, yeah. Be, of, sorry, yeah. The slave holding, yeah. It becomes the it's the party of secession. It's the party of um, very narrow definitions of freedom. In the north, it becomes it's it's the party of labor in some ways in the north, but it is still very much a a, a southern driven party. I, I like to apply a little bit more nuance to it, but. The general framing is that the like the Republican Party is the the pro Black Civil Rights Party of the era, and the Democratic Party is the the pro White Supremacist Party. Although what I try to do in Race Over Party is complicate that a little bit by looking at the at looking at some of those divisions through the lens of of Black politics. And I think what what comes out is that for for African Americans, particularly. Uh, this core group of black independents by the end of the 20, by the end of the 19th century, they don't see a whole lot of light between the two parties. I, I like to tell the story as black politics being caught between two bad choices. I don't want to confuse readers with sort of the, the modern incarnations of the Republican and Democratic parties, but that's after the Civil War, that seems to be the starting point for black partisanship is a, a, a deep loyalty to the abolitionist Republican Party. Yeah, and I think that that's, I mean, that there's legitimate reasons for that, right? I mean, this, the Republican Party is the, the, the party of Lincoln or the party of emancipation. 
they're the party of, of reconstruction. So a lot of your early civil rights legislation coming out of Congress is pioneered by, by Republicans. Yeah, there, there's justifiable reasons why African-American voters tend Republican. Um, what, I, what I try to do in Race Over Party is complicate this idea of loyalty and paint black voters as more pragmatic than I, I think some of the portrayals they've, they've been. That it's, it's not just about sort of loyalty for loyalty's sake based on past deeds, but it's sort of a considered political decision um, about which party to support. You describe, I guess, some of the, the first cracks in that solidarity coming in 1872, and you, you focus on a speech that's actually delivered in New Orleans, not in Boston. Right. Can you describe who was speaking, and then I think especially who was, was listening to that speech? Yeah, so in that speech that Frederick Douglass gives in New Orleans, you know, where he sort of declares that if the Republican Party is the ship, everything else is the sea, and what I tried to do in Race Over Party was tell the story of what I called the sort of castaways of the partisan system. It's this, this cadre of um, African-Americans from Boston who are willing to step outside of the Republican ship and sort of make their own way on the open ocean of partisan politics um, as, as independents. Famously at, the, at that event is um, Edwin Garrison Walker, who... So he's the major figure that I, t I try to tell this story through. So Edwin Garrison Walker is the son of David Walker, who's like very well known to, to students of Antebellum Boston, um, the sort of outspoken radical um, activist in the, in the Antebellum era. Um, Edwin Garrison Walker sort of very much carries on this tradition as a, a sort of outspoken black freedom fighter, very outspoken against the Republican Party and very critical of the Republican Party for not doing enough for, for um, African-Americans. There's this great juxtaposition in New Orleans where you have Frederick Douglass on stage giving the speech in New Orleans, but in the same audience you have black Bostonians, including Edwin Walker, um, who are very much willing to take the risk of, of stepping outside of the Republican ship and... Um, and making their own way, and indeed um, willing to sort of create their own boat, as it will, to, to sort of sail themselves. And it seems like the experience of African Americans in politics in Boston may have been different from the experience in other cities around the same time. What, what would have made Boston politics different? Well, for one, voting looms very large. So African Americans in Boston have had the right to vote for a long period of time, Boston is not a place that where voting begins after the Civil War. African-Americans are not prohibited from voting based on race in Boston. There's other restrictions, but, but race isn't one of them. Boston, although there are sort of marked events of racial discrimination in Boston, it is a fairly free and open city. The schools are desegregated in the mid-1850s, um, um, and so there is access to public education, Unique to Boston, though, you, you do have, so it's a small community um, proportional to the city, but it's highly concentrated. So you have the Boston black community very concentrated in Ward 6. It's going to become Ward 9. And that gives them a fair amount of political power in as far as they're able to elect black representatives to the, 
Massachusetts State House of Representatives and then to the Boston City Council. Um, and I think that that, that, does, that does set them apart uh, um, nationally, uh, that they're able to, to have sort of physical direct access to the halls of power in, in Massachusetts that does make them unique. And that's a feature of the sort of residential segregation in the city that because they are so concentrated in that one ward, that, does, that sort of gives them political power outside of their, their numerical minority um, as far as population. And that Ward 9 is featured on the, the cover of the book, at least the paperback edition that I Yeah, have. correct. That's basically the, the North Slope of Beacon Hill than the, the flats of Beacon Hill for, for our listeners, the, the area, the most scenic part of Beacon Hill today, I would say. Correct. If you sort of walk north from the State House, and then even now where Massachusetts General Hospital was, or where Massachusetts General Hospital is, that was a neighborhood and that before the hospital. And so you can imagine that community sort of stretching north into the, into the north end. But the, the heart of Boston's black community during the 19th century is that northern slope of Beacon Hill, sort of between Mount Vernon Street and, uh, and Charles Street or Cambridge Street. One of the unique factors for Boston's black population was their ability to to stand for it and, and get elected to office. And Edwin Garrison Walker is one of the first class of uh, African-American state representatives, uh, members of the House of Representatives. You discuss how black Bostonians were able to build political resumes for themselves. It sounds like fraternal organizations were very important for building that background before one ran for office. What sort of organizations did African-Americans participate in? Famously, the sort of Prince Hall Masons, and then there's churches are also really important. You also have like political organizations. You have sort of very outspoken civil rights organizations that, um, that African-Americans form to, that help them sort of cut their political teeth. Um, but they very quickly move into, into party politics, that they have their own, like for lack of a better word, sort of African-American machine politics happening in, in Ward 9 that, that, that is very contested and they can contest elections and very much sort of learn, learn, learn urban politics through these elections and through these political organizations. They, they'll start African-American Republican associations. They'll start um, African-American independent political associations that sort of mesh a racial justice message with an with a urban politi- political message. Um, but they are, they're, very, very, they're very outspoken in, in the formal sphere of politics. And that's something that happens from very early on. They view the sort of official channels um, of politics to be, um, to be an avenue of, of black uplift and of, and of black justice. Black women were also participating in politics, although it seems like the avenues they had were a little bit more restricted. How, how were black women becoming involved in politics in Boston? Yeah, so African-American women are present in a lot of these um, spaces. By the 1880s, they can vote for school board. So you do actually see black women as voters in Boston by the, by the 1880s and 1890s. Um, but they, they are a major feature in some of these black political meetings. They are, um, they are very helpful in um, some of the, the organizing that happens um, by the 1880s, 1890s. You're going to see woman-run newspapers talking about black political issues and targeting black men in some ways is not doing enough uh, sort of on their behalf. And so you do have, even though uh, during the early part of Reconstruction, you don't have 
black women in the sort of formal electoral political sphere as voters, they still are very much um, a part of that world. So you mentioned that there were fewer restrictions on voting in Massachusetts than in many places in the early Reconstruction period. You found a survey that was done by George Ruffin in 1864 of voters. What what did it tell you about who leaders were in the black community at that time, and then also who the bulk of black voters were? Um, one thing that it's it's kind of amazing about that document, and this is a fantastic document. If I can just give a shout out to the uh, Moreland Spingarn Research Center at Howard University, um, they they hold the collection that has this document, and it's a it's a survey of black voters that George Ruffin conducted, and it. Um, was an attempt to identify all the African-American voters in this, in this ward and note whether or not they were registered to vote. And so what I, th- what I love about this document is I think, you know, we have an election coming up here and we're always talking about get out and register to vote. And are you registered to vote? And things like that. And, that's, and I think what's exciting about this document is it shows that that's not a, that's not a present day phenomenon, that 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 sort of get out the vote activity was um, was very much a part of the political activism in Boston. What I found from this document is that black voting really cuts across class. So the black leadership tends to be the more established classes, so the more professional classes in terms of like George Ruffin is a lawyer, Edwin Garrison Walker is a lawyer, others will be businessmen and entrepreneurs. But when it comes to who the voters are, you know, they're everywhere from your laborers to um, used clothes sellers to barbers. I mean, they, it really cuts across all of Boston's black class lines, um, which I was really excited about because the, the narrative of Boston has a reputation for um, tending towards the elite and, and tending to be a story of the sort of black upper classes and by talking about voting, it gives you a chance to, to really talk about the black community broadly. And so that was sort of one of those amazing documents that helped, helped me build this, this political world of, of black voting in Boston. So that get out the vote effort was happening in 1864. And then in 1866, we did have the first two African-American men elected to the great and general court of Massachusetts. Yeah. So Edwin Garrison Walker is elected um, and Charles Mitchell are both elected. Yeah, so Edwin Garrison Walker very early on is, is present in this story. Um, as uh, he gets elected from, uh, in Charlestown in a sort of highly contested election that really establishes his, his political independence from the beginning. So he's elected um, as a Republican, but with um, white Irish Democratic votes to succeed in 1866. And so very early on, he sees the power in building these sort of cross-party um, coalitions and becomes almost immediately very outspoken um, in the general court. And one of the reasons that having that Irish-American support was considered remarkable, they, that population had been tending towards a, a support for the Democratic Party, right? They, they are Irish Democrats and they cross party lines um, to vote for Walker. Um, and that's in part due to you know, Walker is an attorney, um, had represented a number of Irish clients. Um, he's very, uh, very strong advocate of Irish independence. Um, some of the Irish Fanian uh, movements, Walker is a, a sort of outspoken supporter of. And so he's done, Walker has done a lot to um, 
to build the support from um, from portions of the Irish community. I don't want to overblow the sort of the friendly relations between African Americans and Irish um, in Boston during the period because we know that that's that's not universal. But I think the story is more complicated, and that that comes out in the book that this um, the story of Black and Irish relations during the era are a lot more complicated and contested than it merely being a story of antagonism. For those of us who became familiar with Boston politics in the era of busing, the idea of cooperation between Irish and black Bostonians is something to really sit up and pay attention to. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that by telling the story that I tell, we might be able to shine a light on, on a, a more positive moment that might inspire us towards figuring out ways to renew those, um, those better, better times. So before we go t- in too much depth on the, the relationship between Irish and black Bostonians, I want to ask about something that happens pretty early in Walker's term as a state rep. He is going to participate in the debates around ratifying the 14th and 15th amendments. Yeah. So this is another reason why I think the Boston story is so important for our understanding of reconstruction because Walker, so very soon after Walker is elected, the 14th Amendment comes up for state-level ratification. Um, and Walker serves on the Committee of Federal Relations that is tasked with, with issuing a report and recommendations around um, this ratification. And in Massachusetts, particularly among African Americans of sort of Walker's cohort, um, they're fairly outspoken against the 14th Amendment. And for our listeners, benefit. The 14th Amendment spells out what we now know as birthright citizenship. So it's it's granting citizenship to formerly enslaved African Americans and by extension, anyone born in the U.S. Um, correct. Yeah. So the, the 14th Amendment sort of establishes, uh, establishes birthright citizenship. It makes um, African Americans who, it, sort of, it overturns Dred Scott, which attempted to take away um, black citizenship. The citizenship question is one. Um, the second thing that really um, interests African Americans is that they want uh, they want a voting provision put into the Fourteenth Amendment. They want voting in a very meaningful way connected to citizenship. They want sort of un unmediated, uncompromised voting as a right of citizenship. They're very skeptical that if voting isn't established immediately and isn't established as a, as a citizenship right, um, that it will sort of be whittled away. They really want voting um, established in the 14th Amendment. They're also really upset with Section 2 of the 14th Amendment that basically says that if southern states restrict black voting, they will be penalized by a loss of um, representation in Congress. And that's really dissatisfying for a lot of African Americans. They, they view that penalty as not harsh enough. They're skeptical that it'll be enforced. And they are skeptical that it will be enough deterrent for disenfranchisement. Um, famously, Walker talks about that, you know, they, that the South was willing to lose two-fifths of representation to maintain slavery under the, the three-fifths um, compromise that surely they would be willing to lose a little bit of representation if it meant disenfranchisement. They view the 14th Amendment as 
as too pro um, too pro Confederate, too pro Southern. They want much harder language preserving and uh, preserving black rights and preserving voting rights. Um, and yeah, and Walker, um, the Committee on Federal Relations pens a a report of which Walker is one of the authors. And in this report, make the claim that because Walker is one of the authors, because and Walker is an African American, he has more of more legitimacy to speak on the Fourteenth Amendment than uh, all the other white lawmakers who have um, previously authored this. That they they say that like they're writing from the position of those who are going to be affected by this amendment. Therefore, that that gives them a greater amount of credibility. Um, and so Walker authors this report, and he then follows it up with a very fiery speech on the floor of the Massachusetts State House. This is the first speech given by any African-American on the floor of the House, and it is sort of outspoken against the amendment. He you know, famously says that the amendment guards against everything else um, but the interests of the millions of African-Americans in the United States. And so that sets Walker's, the next 40 years of Walker's career in motion with this speech, that it, the, the willingness of Walker to be so outspoken in opposition to a, a Republican Party amendment. You know, this is the 14th Amendment is a product of the Republican Party. And for him to sort of go against the party in such an outspoken way um, is really going to that's really going to define um, the politics for the rest of his life. And so I think you see almost from the, the end, the immediate end of the civil war, the way in which partisan politics and racial politics are sort of immediately injected into the Boston political discussion. I should say that the amendment does, the amendment does effect, uh, eventually pass. Um, we, that's, um, but Massachusetts is one of those last states um, in the North to ratify the 14th amendment. And part of that is because of opposition from folks like Walker. Um, even though Walker himself, both Walker and Mitchell, um, are going to vote against ratification, um, even though it does pass, um, they're going to oppose its ratification, even when it comes to the vote. So the 15th Amendment also passes, which says that no one can be barred from voting based on race, color, previous condition of servitude, but yet somehow we end up without universal suffrage. Um, and some of that it sounds like might have been due to white Republicans' fears of their fellow whites. Yeah, I mean, there, so there is, this is the era of literacy requirements and in some states still property requirements. And so, I mean, some of that is, is about class, but I think also it, what it does is it opens up the opportunity for you. The 15th Amendment only prohibits blatantly racial prohibitions on voting. Um, it doesn't establish the right to vote. To, oftentimes people say, oh, the 15th Amendment gave African-Americans the right to vote. Well, it doesn't, in fact, do that. It, it doesn't actually grant you a right. As the next century of Southern politics will prove. And, it, and it really, like, what, what Walker and others want in these debates over the 14th Amendment is not, they're not satisfied with what the 15th Amendment grants them. Um, they want you know, harder, they want, they want citizenship and voting to be inseparable. You know, they want, you know, universal protected suffrage. And I think that as the story of, uh, you know, the tragic history of America is that without that sort of hard 
protection, white supremacists are very creative in finding ways to to limit black voting. So did Walker and his his cohort of of black leaders have the same reaction against the 15th that they did to the, to the 14th or was the focus really more on the 14th amendment it is more on the 14th they 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 celebrate the 15th amendment when the 15th amendment passes it's it's very popular i mean there there are big celebrations but they're they still are skeptical they're 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 skeptical of bla- that the that black voting will actually be protected beyond just this amendment they are celebratory over the 15th amendment there still is this skepticism about what the voting, what voting will mean. And so the other thing that they really, they also want black office holding. You know, I think that they know that it's not enough merely to have access to the ballot. If you can't actually get, uh, you can't, you can't actually get a seat at the table politically. You know, Edwin Walker famously says after the passage of the 15th amendment that, that racism is really going to stand in the way of African-Americans being able to really take advantage of any voting protection, the 15th grants, uh, particularly he's looking at, um, looking at, looking at Massachusetts and, and thinking about um, black political power and black, the ability of African-Americans to gain official political positions in Massachusetts. Um, I think they're still, they're still skeptical that um, about what, what having the vote will mean for them. So the the fight over the Fourteenth Amendment sort of reveals a lack of unity within the Republican Party that that black members of the party are starting to feel some skepticism toward the Republican Party, and then you point to eighteen seventy two as being a year when that really comes out into the open that fissure within the Republican Party, and that's the year that uh, Horace Greeley is going to run against Ulysses S. Grant, and then. Benjamin Butler, uh, Civil War general and somebody who we've featured on the podcast before, is going to try to find a sort of a, th- a third way politics in Massachusetts. Can you describe sort of what was happening in Boston in 1872 as these two different political campaigns are heating up? Um, sure. So in, in 1872, famously, you have sort of Ulysses S. Grant running from the as a incumbent president. And then you have um, Horace Greeley running against him, not as a Democrat, but as um, sort of a, um, a separate party. Splinter party. Right. A- and they, uh, so they call it the, it's like the liberal Republican um, kick it. I don't, want, I don't want to go too much into the, the debate between Greeley and Grant, but that a lot of African-Americans start to think about whether or not Greeley would be an avenue for, for their support. Um, Charles Sumner famously will support Greeley, you know, Charles Sumner, the famous sort of white Boston abolitionist and, um, Senator, and then others like Robert Morris will come out in favor of Greeley. And partly it's thinking about what the Republican party has done and what is, what it's going to do for the Republican party. And so you start to see. You, you start to see this question about what the what the political future for African Americans is going to be as far as partisanship, and there starts to be this discussion about whether or not African Americans are going to continue to be uncritical, loyal supporters of the Republican Party, or are they going to be willing to hold the Republican Party account to account? And I think by 1872, you're also starting to see 
the continuation of um, atrocities and violence against African Americans in the South by by white supremacists. There's a feeling growing among black Bostonians that the federal government isn't doing enough to suppress that. That skepticism of the Republican Party begins to manifest, and it manifests in part um, towards the support of Greeley, not, not solely for Greeley for Greeley's sake, but more as a willingness to show the Republican Party that African Americans are watching, and that if the Republican Party doesn't do something, if they're not more outspoken in favor of black interests, black voters are willing to go elsewhere. And you have that same trend more locally with, with Benjamin Butler. Right. So um, Butler, Butler comes on the scene as, um, as a candidate, and Butler you know, is famous. He's the, the general during the Civil War that helps protect fugitive slaves. He is famously in charge of New Orleans after the Union um, occupies New Orleans. And then he comes back to um, and is elected to Congress and is a very outspoken advocate of, of black rights. He is one of the authors of the Civil Rights Act. He's a very he's endeared himself to the Boston's black community um, as, as, as an advocate in Washington. And so he so he is a Republican initially, but he because he switches a lot over the course of his career. Um, but no, so it's really in 1872, Butler starts to, to come to Boston to, to speak to, to black Bostonians. And he runs for governor over and over at 1872, 78, I want to say. Yeah, he runs sort of several, several years in a row until finally um, in the early 1880s when he, when he wins um, as governor. And by that time, has he switched uh, parties to the Democratic Party? He does. So he becomes a Democrat, at least for for local purposes, by the by the eighteen eighties. And so then, to still have strong African American support, that has to be something of a watershed moment for Black voters to consider voting, supporting Butler's Democratic candidacy um, for a party that had been historically pretty well arrayed against their interests, I think. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is, so if there's cracks forming by, you know, I, I sort of look at it as like, well, you can, you start to see the cracks with Walker in 1866. As we get into the early 1870s, those cracks, we start, start to get a little wider. By the 1880s, those cracks have blown wide open. The, the end of federal reconstruction in eight, with the compromise of 1877 has really sort of brought some of these uh, black Bostonians worst fears to light um, this fear that for the sake of political expediency, re- the Republican party is willing to sacrifice um, black lives and black rights. It has sort of come to fruition and they're watching the immediate flood, this sort of flood of renewed white supremacy and white supremacist violence across the South and which they wo- which they, they saw happening very early on. And so by the 1880s, you know, folks like Walker, if they were toying with leaving the Republican Party, by the 1880s, they're, they're fully, they're, they're, their skepticism is fully established. And they really have declared their political independence um, by the 1880s. And that really, that manifests in support for Butler um, as, a, as governor um, in 1882 and then in 1883. They really plant themselves firmly as as black independents, 
um, willing to support um, whichever candidate, regardless of party, is going to is going to represent their interests. And and they decide in in the early 1880s that that candidate's going to be Benjamin Butler for governor. After he's elected, Butler then nominates uh, Walker as a a district court judge, making him the first black judge or would, would be making him the first black judge in Massachusetts. What does that tell us about what those interests of African-American voters were? I know you've pointed to patronage jobs or a, sort of a, appointed jobs and then also office holding as two major goals. Yeah. So black office holding is incredibly important, not just in Boston, but but generally, I mean, not only does it give you a voice directly in, in, politi- in you know, government decision making, but the symbolic value of black office holding is incredibly important. That the ability for, and, the, and they talk about this at the time, the ability of young African-American children to see people who look like them in the halls of government, in the halls of power, um, is incredibly meaningful and important for um, for black politics and for the black community. Appointed positions become incredibly important um, because so many electoral avenues are closed to them. So if, if they're going to gain footholds in formal um, spheres of government, it's going to be through these appointed positions. And so they're watch, they watch very carefully what elected officials do when it comes to black appointments and are very, one of their big critiques of the Republican Party is that the Republican Party likes African-Americans well enough as voters, but then doesn't appoint them to these positions, which it appoints other white supporters to. And so that's one of their major grievances when they talk about leaving the Republican Party. It's that the Republican Party doesn't appreciate them through the appointment to positions um, of power, which, of course, political appointments are sort of part and parcel of machine politics. And they, they, they're watching the sort of white members of the political machine get these positions, but the um, uh, black supporters are sort of left on the, on the outside. And so that becomes a very major grievance because black office holding has such a not only practical value, but also such a, an important symbolic value as a, as a symbol of equality. So what are some of the appointed offices we're talking about? So African-Americans are appointed to the Office of Weights and Measures. They're appointed to the Customs House. They're appointed to some positions, I think, within the fire, uh, the fire department, police department. Um, there are also some other positions, clerkships and others within the um, state house that they're appointed to. And this is in addition to keep in mind that during this period, African-Americans are, are continuing to be elected to the state house. So during this period, you at least have one black representative in the general court um, during this era as well. But this, this Charlestown judgeship that opens in, um, during Butler's term in 1883 is really, that, that's, that's a very important position, right? Because it's, ju- it's a judgeship, right? And so that becomes a major, a major controversy during that election when Butler appoints Edwin Walker um, to the, to the position and the Republican dominated executive council. So the way that Massachusetts government's laid out is you have a, you have a governor, but then you have an executive council that, um, has to, uh, ratify appointments and the executive council, um, even though at this point 
Butler himself has switched to the Democratic Party, the council is still very heavily Republican. Right? Yeah, it's. I mean, there's enough Republican members on it to to reject uh, Walker's appointment, and that's this is seen as sort of a craven partisan act on the uh, part of the Republicans, and really as a symbol of everything Walker has been saying that. You know, the Republican Party doesn't actually care about African-American interests. They're just interested in political expediency. I mean, this is just another piece of evidence that they, they don't want. And what Walker says is that they don't want to give Butler credit for appointing a black judge, uh, particularly someone who's as outspoken against the Republican Party as Walker. And so Walker ends up not getting appointed um, to the position. And then after Butler is defeated... Um, in 1883, Butler's going to lose re-election to a Republican. He nominates George Ruffin. George Ruffin is an outspoken Republican partisan and uh, is a very powerful voice on behalf of the Republican Party. And he's almost immediately approved um, as judge. And Ruffin, if, if you know about George Ruffin today, he's famously known as the first black judge in Massachusetts. And that has sort of cemented his legacy when that legacy could have been Walker's. Um, and I think we would, have, we would have told a very different history of Edwin Walker had he, had, he, had he ascended to that position and not Ruffin. So what does the confirmation of Ruffin tell the black community about where the, the political parties in Boston are going at that point? For black independence, it, it shows that partisanship matters. You know, that it, it's not just, a, it's not about, you know, it's not about justice. It's not about equality that it becomes, it's a, that partisanship is also, or uh, also has to be considered that, you know, the fact that Ruffin is very easily approved um, is a sign that it was more than just race that played into it. It was also, also the political party that you're affiliated with matters. And so for independence, that is going to further solidify their position against the Republican Party. And then it's going to be more fuel to increase skepticism among some black Republicans um, towards, towards, the, um, towards independent politics. And so that um, I really point to this uh, judicial appointment as one of those markers in the history of, of black independent politics in Boston that's going to then lead into um, the Cleveland election um, for president when African-Americans are going to support Grover Cleveland as, as president of the United States as a Democrat. So Cleveland's running as a, a new kind of Democrat in 1884, uh, respecting black rights, at least to some degree. So some black voters are going to support that. Others are still going to fear empowering this Democratic Party that since before the Civil War has been nakedly white supremacist. How How do those two positions play out in the election among the African-American community in Boston? Sure. So I think for, for black independence and sort of following, I would say following De Butler's defeat, this cohort of black independence, which includes Walker, it's going to include James Trotter, um, are going to come together in an organization called the Sumner National Independent League. And that becomes their sort of political organization. And they, they are very outspoken through this league for Cleveland's um, election, their strategy is that if you can get enough black voters to support Democratic candidates, 
uh, northern Democratic candidates will start looking to black voters as a way to gain inroads um, in the north. And it, in order to do that, they're going to have to come to the table on, on, on black, black civil rights. And that if you could get enough northern Democrats to support um, a civil rights agenda, that that would potentially push out white supremacist Democrats in the South. And so their like grand strategy is that if you can get enough African-Americans can be seen by the Democratic Party as a viable constituency, that would force the party to have to support a civil rights agenda that would then sort of push the white supremacists out of, out of the party. So that's, that's sort of their grand, their grand plan. And they are sort of excited by Grover Cleveland as, you know, Cleveland is from New York. He represents a slightly moderate vision of, of the Democratic Party. Um, and so they view, even though, you know, Cleveland isn't necessarily seen as a huge boomer of black civil rights, he does, through some of the appointments he does, through some others, he's seen at least like there's some hope that Cleveland could be the beginning of this change within the Democratic Party. For, so there is like some optimism on the part of, of black Democrats. For black Republicans, this is a nightmare. For, for black Republicans, there is a, a view that, is, that as soon as you put Democrats in power, this is, gonna, that's, this is going to be the end. That the Democratic Party is the party of white supremacy. Don't let anybody fool you into thinking that they're moderate. As soon as Democrats get in power, the white supremacist wave is going to come north from the south and, and, and take over everything. And so they view the idea of black support of the Democratic Party is, is so frightening that they, they're incredibly outspoken about it. They, they publish a newspaper, the Boston Hub, that is, you know, Lewis Hayden in his final years. Fam- Lewis Hayden, the famous black abolitionist, is going to rail against independent politics. Um, there's a fear that as soon as you open the door for the Democratic Party, that that's going to mean out and out white supremacy and particularly white supremacist violence um, and the end of all the gains that they've they've fought so so hard for. So, so you have this two these two sides come together during these elections. So Cleveland does get elected and does he live up to the hype? Does he make appointments of African-Americans? Does he protect civil rights in the democratic South? How, how does his presidency measure up to the campaign? I mean, so I think that it's, it's not the watershed. It's not the watershed one way or the other. I think it doesn't, it's not a new era of equality, nor is it, you know, the, nor does it mean the end of the world. Um, I think that Cleveland sort of doesn't do, he neglects um, black rights, which means that he's not going to interfere in some of the actions that are happening in the South, which means that um, the, the rising tide of, of, of Jim Crow and of, of white supremacist violence is going to continue. He does, however, appoint, he does appoint James Trotter to replace Frederick Douglass as recorder of deeds for Washington, D.C. Um, so Frederick Douglass famously has um, a position in Washington, D.C., very prominent public position in Washington, D.C. as recorder of deeds. Douglas is no longer in that position. Uh, there is a big move from Boston to have one of their own um, appointed to that position. And James Trotter, another famous African-American 
independent in Boston is uh, going to be appointed by Cleveland to to fill that position. Now, our our listeners will have met James's son, William Monroe Trotter, but we haven't really talked about James on the show before. Can you just introduce us to him? Yeah. So James Trotter is he's a Civil War veteran. Um, eventually lands in in Boston in Massachusetts and becomes a very po- um, very popular public political actor um, and leader in in Black Boston, but very very outspoken as a as a political as a political independent, very close ally of of Edwin of Edwin Garrison Walker, um, and I think you see the sort of outspokenness of um, William Monroe Trotter is. I believe very much in the tradition of his father that he is, as a child would have seen his father's political activity um, and that, and and he very much follows in James's footsteps. And so James Trotter sort of cements the success of independent politics when he when he is appointed to this position in Washington and very much is there's hope that what has happened with Trotter is the beginning of this victory of of independent politics but of course that doesn't happen and by the end of cleveland's term and by the end of the 1880s um the hope that you were going to find a sort of transformed moderated democratic party it's fairly clear that that's not going to happen it also becomes increasingly clear that the republican party is not going to be the the vehicle and not going to be the the strong advocate for black rights either and so by the end of the 1880s you're you're, we start to see black independence sort of, of skeptical of either party as an avenue. If, if, the 1880, if the story of black independent politics in the 1880s is one of hope in the Democratic Party, the story of the 1890s is going to be sort of a cynicism towards the two-party system generally and um, a need to strike out outside of the two political parties um, when it comes to black political organizing. Now, before we get into the 1890s, you spent a fairly good chunk of the book uh, right at the end of the 1880s focusing on a sort of a surprising uh, political coalition in Boston. And you, you introduce it by describing black and Irish Bostonians marching together for the unveiling of the Crispus Attucks monument on the common. Can you talk a little bit about how Crispus Attucks becomes a uniting force for these two very different groups? Yeah, so um, this is you know, November 1888. This the monument to Christopher Sadix is inaugurated. Um, famously, for those of you in Boston, uh, if you want to visit it, it's prominent on the uh, the side of the Boston Common, just down from the Park Street Station. Um, you can you can find this obelisk, and this is so this is the monument we're talking about here. That yeah, Christopher Sadix becomes this unifying figure, and that famously for. If you know the Boston Massacre, it's not just Crispus Attucks who's killed, um, but also several other several other protesters, including a uh, Irish Bostonian who's also um, also killed on that day. And so the Boston Massacre has this symbolic value for African Americans. It's a, a powerful image of black um, participation in the founding moments of the nation. For Irish Bostonians, it, it's also about you know uh, participation in this revolutionary moment, but it's also about resistance to British tyranny. You know, in the 1880s, if you know your Irish history, the 1880s is also a, a very strong period in Irish independence, and so the Boston Massacre is seen by Irish Bostonians 
as a moment of um, resistance to British tyranny. And so it, it's a symbol that allows, you know, black and Irish to come together and sort of unite these two freedom struggles. You know, if on the one side of the Atlantic you have um, uh, a struggle for Irish freedom within the British Empire, in the United States you also have a struggle for black freedom within the United States. And Crispus Attucks becomes the symbol that that very that in the in the shape of a physical monument is going to bring together these two freedom struggles in a very physical um, physical way. And I one of my the the one of the hopes I have through writing this book was that we might talk about this monument in a slightly different way. That we might talk about it not only as a monument to the the fallen victims of the Boston Massacre, but also um, as a monument to this moment of Black and Irish unity. That unity goes beyond just the monument. You say that as early as the 1860s, Edwin Walker was counting on Irish support when he was running for state legislature. And then in the other direction, uh, Hugh O'Brien, the first Irish mayor of Boston, sounds like he was also relying on African-American support in his campaign. Yeah. So Hugh O'Brien um, is elected as um, Boston's first Irish-born mayor. Um, before he becomes um, a mayor, he's on the city council and in this position is, a, is an advocate of, um, of black political positions. He um, um, appoints some African-Americans to office. And so when, when he's running for, for mayor, um, he taps the um, black Bostonians as, as a constituency. And um, Patrick McGuire, who's a, a political strategist, um, among other things, um, is going to give speeches to the black community, advocating the support of O'Brien um, in his first election in 1884. Um, you're going to get what are called colored O'Brienite clubs forming in the city, and these are clubs dedicated to black support of O'Brien. And then one, once O'Brien is elected, there's going to be a lot of hope in, in, in O'Brien as a a representative not only of the Irish community but also of the Black community in the mayor's office, and and O'Brien does um, does attempt to appoint some African Americans to office, and um, and so you do you see the support of, of Hugh O'Brien and of the sort of Black uh, of the Irish political machine generally. There's sort of this moment in the 1880s where um, Black independents join with the sort of Irish political machine in this in this history. So the dedication of the the Attucks statue is almost the the culmination of this partnership that's been growing for over a decade at that point. Yeah, and I really I, I really point to sort of three to like two areas that come to fruition in the Attucks monument. And one is one is this political support, um, electoral support for Hugh O'Brien, but the other is the um, the black support of Irish independence. For uh, and Walker's a major proponent of this. There's a lot of support for Irish independence among African Americans as part of this sort of transatlantic freedom struggle. That they they look to the Irish struggle against British tyranny um, in Ireland as very as similar to their own. And there's this hope among um, some African Americans that if that through the support of Black independence and the and the or sorry through the support of Irish independence that um, Irish Bostonians, um, even Irish in Ireland, would support the black freedom struggle. And so African-Americans in Boston, they campaign for Irish independence. They're going to famously 
hold a benefit concert to raise money for Charles Parnell's Home Rule Fund. Um, and so in some very real ways, they, they view themselves as supporters of Irish independence um, in the hope that that's going to bring um, Irish Bostonians to their cause. And that and and that's seen in the in the Crispus Attucks monument. So the Crispus Attucks monument, I argue, is sort of a byproduct of not only the political success that they've had through the election of Hugh O'Brien, but also through the the joining of these two freedom struggles. The that that manifests itself in that in that physical monument. And I guess as a reaction to that to those freedom struggles being joined. It seems like old Yankee Boston isn't as thrilled about the idea of a Crispus Attucks monument as uh, some other populations. You would think, for example, a group like our friends at the Massachusetts Historical Society would enthusiastically endorse a monument to massacre victim Crispus Attucks, but it seems like that support wasn't universal. Yeah, no, and I, this is um, all, cr- all credit to the Massachusetts Historical Society, who... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I've done. I did some great research there, and but this is a, this was a, a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Massachusetts Historical Society comes out, and this is among others um, against the, the the monument to Crispus Attucks and the Boston Massacre because, the, in their mind, the Boston Massacre is not a noble story. It's the story of basically a riot and a bunch of ruffians, and and why should we be memorializing this? this riot. And it, the part of the conditions of this monument is that it's raised with public money. And so a lot of the other monuments that we see around Boston are privately fundraised. Um, the Crispus Attucks monument is built with public money. And part of the critique is that public money shouldn't be used to build a monument to rioters and hoodlums. Um, it should, you know, that this is not the noble revolutionary history that um, a, a particular class of Bostonians wants to wants to portray, um, and they, and that what that ends up doing is fueling the uh, a lot of the Irish um, uh, anger towards this. It's viewed as a very pro-British stance. Um, they talk about Tor- uh, Tory Boston as as um, opposing the monument, um, and then it's also. You know, these are also Republicans who are opposing this monument, right? And so, I think for proponents of independent politics, this is another sign that um, when push comes to shove, white Republicans aren't going to support something even as even as sort of noble and as as a monument to Crispus Attucks. The critique of the monument by white Boston, I think, ends up sort of fueling some of the sort of continued skepticism of. Of, of how deep the support for black interest actually is in the city. Yeah. You describe after the unveiling of the statue, there were actually two different celebratory parties that night, one at the uh, Parker house restaurant and another at Ebenezer Baptist church. Uh, why were there two different parties? Yeah. So there's one that's sort of like the official event, um, which has the governor and the mayor and all this and that, and the, the rhetoric of that event is very, it's very optimistic, right? It's about equality. And you know that this, this monument is a sign that, that race relations are, are great and that, you know, everybody is free and equal. And look, we have this monument to show for it. Um, the members who are attending that party are sort of the official political leadership. So you have um, the Julius Chappelle, who's um, a Republican 
um, elected official Black Boston. You have Lewis Hayden. You have some of these other sort of, it's a very much, it's a um, official ceremony. It's also a very Republican ceremony apart from, from Hugh O'Brien. Um, down the street in the uh, uh, Knights of Pythias um, fraternal organization, um, you have an- another meeting, and this includes George Downing, who's also a um, outspoken black independent, and Edwin Walker. And their attitude is a little bit more sanguine. You know, they're they are not as triumphant. I think that they view they view Christmas Attics as an inspiration and as, as a call to action. That Christmas Attics is a symbol for of revolution. Um, Christmas Attics is a symbol for the future of the movement. Um, they they don't view they don't view the construction of this monument as a triumph. They view it as an inspiration for um, for continued action. And so I think you can see this contrast between the sort of continued skepticism and agitation on the part of of black independent politics that's that's going to fuel them into the 1890s. So this seems to be a time when the independent movement's going undergoing sort of a a generational change. From your book, I would sort of take that to 1887 and a new group called the the Colored National League. Uh, can you describe what that organization was and then what that meant for electoral politics around Boston? Yeah. So by the end of the 1880s, you're going to, um, in 1887, this organization called the Colored National League is formed. And this is, it's a black political organization dedicated to a, a sort of national black political struggle, similar to um, there's what's known as the Afro-American League, which is T. Thomas Fortune, who's out of New York. That's hit um, another large movement. So this is really an era of, of, of black political organizing. And Boston is a part of this history through the Colored National League. Um, but the Colored National League, sort of, as you say, sort of represents a new stage in, in black politics. No longer do you sort of have these other political organizations geared more towards um, partisan politics. The Colored National League, even though they maintain a um, they maintain an interest in electoral politics, it's very much seen as its own uh, own entity sitting outside of of the formal political system. And so, even as much as the Colored National League is this new generation, um, somebody like Edwin Walker is going to be um, very prominent in 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 its early years. Um, as as a leader, so in some ways it blends this new generation along with the um, the older generation. Um, but it is it's very much ushers in this era of um, the sort of the black political organization that's that sits outside of the two parties. And so the way that I tell the narrative is that by the 1890s, African Americans are starting to lose hope that there's an avenue within official political party structures. And so they strike out on their own. And the African American, the Colored National League is going to be um, one of these entities that's going to attempt to marshal black political interests um, in a way that's sort of extra, extra electoral. Part of the impetus behind sort of striking out independent of the political parties was probably due to a reunification between Democrats and Republicans, white Democrats and white Republicans. They were very focused on sort of national unity of whites at the expense of African-American civil rights, especially it seems like there was a fight over an election law in 1889 that might have solidified that. 
Yeah, so in 1889, there is an attempt to um, pass a federal elections law to protect black voting. And that um, that is defeated. It doesn't end up uh, becoming law. And that's a sign that any hope that you've had in this Democratic Party, uh, even some of these northern Democrats ultimately playing out um, in in meaningful legislation isn't going to happen. And that really, so like by 1890, you start to get, black independents have sort of lost hope that the southern arm of the Democratic Party was on the run, that by the, by the, defe- the defeat of the federal elections law sh- really shows that southern Democrats are, are, are in charge. And any hope of, of moderating influence in that party, um, that hope is, is, starts to be eroded. But then further, the inability of Republicans within Congress to be outspoken and, and, and get anything done is a symbol of, of, of that, um, the failure of that party. And so by the 1890s, you know, as you mentioned, there is a trend away from black civil rights um, and as far in, in white-dominated politics. There's an attempt more towards building the economy, building industry, and, and, and cementing reunification to discuss um, black civil rights at a, at a federal level is too divisive and it will, it'll stand in the way of, of, um, of unity and of economic progress. And, and that really comes at the, at the expense of African-Americans. So simultaneous to these changes happening politically, this is also the era where of, of lynching. And so we're going to start to see this take a real toll, not just on black rights, but on black lives, so that the inability of federal political leadership to, to take a stand has, re- results in real like, devastating consequences for African-Americans, particularly in the South, but also nationally. Lynching is remembered as a, a primarily a Southern problem, but it sounds like Boston's African-American community was very involved in the fight against lynching and the, the attempts to pass anti-lynching laws. How did Northern African-Americans, local Boston African-Americans get involved in the national fight against lynching? Throughout this whole period, African-Americans in Boston, they view themselves and their rights as sort of inseparable to what's happening in the South. And so everything that they do is always with one eye on the South. And so when they see this, the sort of increase in white supremacist violence in the South, that is another sort of rallying cry, particularly um, when they see sort of federal inaction to this violence. And so they'll form organizations um, in addition to the Colored National League, they form the, um, it's called the Massachusetts Racial Protection Association that is, is formed also as, as, as an explicit anti-lynching organization. They're going to be one of the first cities to support um, someone like Ida B. Wells, very famous um, Southern journalist, but also national and international anti-lynching advocate. You know, they, they raise money, they write letters, they are very powerful, um, powerfully outspoken against against anti-lynching at a time when in a lot of communities um, talking about lynching was still not not as popular. Um, Boston is very outspoken in its in its anti-lynching uh, advocacy to the to the point at which they get attention from the South. You describe a, a very well publicized meeting at Faneuil Hall in 1895 where the Massachusetts Racial Protective Association is advocating against lynching. And then this 
really strong reaction in the Southern press. How did the Southern press cover that event? Yeah, it's kind of amazing that uh, that was something that I didn't, I didn't think I was going to find. And that when there's this famous speech or famous rally in Boston, and that it's followed up in a, a Texas newspaper and some other newspapers that um, report on this as, you know, this is just an example of, you know, these sort of, you know, northern Bostonian attitude. They don't have any idea what's happening in the South. They need to mind their own business. If they want, if, and if they want to get into the business, they, could, they should come down here and we'll show them what the business is really about. Um, and so they threaten Bostonians. They threaten the, the mayor of Boston for being a part of this, um, this meeting. And then they, they attempt to defend themselves. Um, they uh, attempt to defend the, the lynching that they are doing um, through a, uh, a protection of white womanhood. This is a moment where we really see that this is not just like an isolated Boston story, but what Boston is doing is getting attention um, nationally. And that Boston is seen as one of the one of the hubs, for lack of a better word, of this um, anti-lynching advocacy, even by the perpetrators themselves. Yeah, and so it really this this helps put Boston sort of increasingly more on the map as a site of of um, racial justice and and anti-lynching advocacy. And there's there's a wing of that anti-lynching movement that turns really very radical. I know you quoted Reverend Walter Gay as saying. We've preached to our people to desist from t- retaliation. Now I say to my race, find revenge if we have to use the torch. Find revenge if we have to cut the throats of those white Southerners who rape our women. Retaliate, I say. Take life for life. Is that emblematic of the anti-lynching movement broadly, or is that a sort of a narrow uh, thread? I mean, I, I think that it's, it's emblematic, I think, of the frustration and yeah, the tragic moment that African-Americans find themselves in, that it's, I think that there's this feeling that the country has abandoned them, the federal government has abandoned them, the Republican Party has abandoned them, and the only way that, the, the only possible way forward would be through self-defense. And um, even though we don't, you know, we don't see a Boston militia form and go south, I think that this this rhetoric is very emblematic of how how bad things have gotten. That African Americans ha- no longer have hope in um, nonviolent avenues. Um, that you know they're they're being pushed um, by an unwillingness to act on the part of the federal government, in particular, um, towards potential um, potential self defense. So we've already talked about sort of the the efforts to reunify white Americans after the Civil War, leading politicians away from black civil rights. But it seems like the the anti-lynching movement helps to point out just how far that has gone. You you describe in, in 1896, there was a really just terrible, brutal sorry, in 1898, the lynching of a South Carolina postmaster and his almost his entire family. And then Activists start advocating to bring the surviving members of his family to Boston. And I feel like that was very revealing of a gulf between black and white activists in Boston. Yeah. So in, in 1898, in February of 1898, Fraser Baker, who's a black postmaster in South Carolina, 
Um, his home and his family are brutally attacked. Um, an armed mob sets his house on fire. And as him and his family are attempting to leave, they shoot up the building. So that you, I mean, and you imagine you have this like family trying to flee the building. Bullets are flying through the house. Fraser Baker ends up dying. Um, their youngest child ends up being shot as the um, mother, the uh, Lavinia Baker, is trying to carry Julia out of the building. Um, a bullet um, kills the baby, and the baby falls into the fire. It's this sort of horrible. It's a horribly tragic and and horrific event. Um, but I should say emblematic of similar types of violence happening throughout the South. So as as horrific as the Baker lynching is, I wish we could say that it was um, unique to uh, South Carolina, but it's, I think just, it's one of many lynchings that are occurring. Um, In our episode about the um, David Walker's appeal, uh, we read from a, a publication that W.E.B. Du Bois put out just a about a decade after this, this long list of the lynchings and racial violence across the South. It's as horrifying a thing as you ever want to read. Yeah. And so I think that's to say that, you know, this Baker, the Baker lynching brings a sort of all of lynching home to Boston. So the Baker family, um, uh, Lavinia Baker and um, some of the children survive. And there's an attempt by black Bostonians, by the Colored National League, to bring them to Boston, to get them out of South Carolina for their own safety, but also just for recovery and um, to get them out of the South, bring them to Boston. Um, I should say before I get go into this that nobody is ever convicted for the Baker lynching, um, that um, ultimately no one is, is held responsible for that, which is also sadly not unique for the, um, for the era. That's the case in most lynchings, it seems. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so there's an attempt to bring the, uh, the Baker family north to Boston in the, the rally to bring this family north. Um, there is a, a conflict between black and white at, um, activists, the, and in particular between black activists and uh, Lillian Jewett. So Lillian Jewett is a, is a white woman, um, very much styles herself after Harriet Beecher Stowe um, as sort of a white female advocate of the race. Um, and so she attempts to um, she's all, she also becomes sort of outspoken to bring this family north. And that creates some tension within among the black supporters, particularly Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin, who is um, she's not just she's the wife of George Ruffin, but in her own right is a powerful black political activist, um, uh, outspoken political speaker and um, editor of um, the women's era um, black newspaper. Um, she sort of takes the lead on um uh, bringing the the Baker family north, and she's very um, outspoken against Lillian Jewett um, taking over this movement. There's a fear that Jewett is taking what was a black-led movement and and taking that away from them. That she she wants people to know that it was African Americans who first talked about bringing this family north. It was African Americans that were the uh, outspoken act, um, opponents of lynching. And that this should be their cause, that they, they've too often, by the 1890s, seen um, white so-called political allies co-opt black movements and take it away from them. And so she's 
Ruffin makes some very powerful statements against um, against Jewett and very much wants this to remain a black-led um, operation. And I think that, that that dovetails nicely with the um, electoral discussion where increasingly by the end of the 1880s, there's this sense that you can no longer, African-Americans can no longer depend on white political leadership for progress. That if racial progress is going to be achieved, it's going to be achieved with black leaders in charge and with black leadership and black activists driving the movement. And so what happens around the Baker lynching is emblematic of, of something that's happening in greater black politics, which is an increasing turn towards black political autonomy, um, what's going to be eventually called black nationalism, this sense that if the black freedom struggle is going to succeed, it's going to succeed at, at black hands, that you cannot depend on, on white allies um, any longer. And that just like your belief in the loyalty to the Republican Party was misplaced, similarly, by placing your faith in somebody like um, Helen Jewett is also misplaced, that um, African-Americans can now only depend on themselves. So along those lines, uh, a year before his death, Edwin Walker actually runs for president himself in the election of 1900. And spoiler alert, is not elected. William McKinley gets reelected there. But he's running on the ticket of a new political party. So what does that mean for the state of African-American politics in Boston at this sort of turn of the century moment? Yeah. So in the 1900 political election, Edwin Walker is going to serve on the ticket for the National Negro Party um, with um, PBS Pinchback, who is a famous African-American um, Louisiana lieutenant governor, he al- who also attends the dedication of the Christmas Attucks Monument. Uh, yeah, they Edwin Walker runs for president as part of this National Negro Party. It's a very small party. You know, it's you don't there's not it's hard to find much about it. But um, this is really Walker's ultimate break from the two party system. You know that he he says that you know neither party is going to support black interests, and that um, it would be better for African Americans either to not vote at all or to vote for their own party. Um, that there is no longer any hope in in the Republican Party or in the Democratic Party, um, and that he he's watching by the 1900 the conditions of African Americans nationally, um, but especially in the South, really deteriorate, um, and he lays the blame sort of wholly at the feet of the federal government and wholly at the f- at the feet of the Repu- of Republican leadership, now, particularly McKinley. You know, McKinley is a Republican, and I think there's some hope that. McKinley is going to um, uh, do something about lynching. Uh, McKinley famously takes a tour of the South and doesn't talk about lynching. Um, that, and I think that that's a huge blow to African Americans. This idea that you now have a Republican back in the presidency and he's not going to he's not going to do anything to prevent um, these sort of Southern atrocities, and that that really cements. You know, what what was this sort of this um, opposition to the Republican Party and to um, party politics that has been present throughout the late 19th century? By the turn of the 20th century, um, that, that has pretty much proved um, justified that by, by the 20th century, not only 
has the inability of the of the federal of the federal government of the Republican Party to act cost black rights, but it's it's cost black lives, and that that now there there there's no hope any longer of of finding solace in in the political parties. The only option is um, for African Americans to to head out on their own and forge um, new separate political organizations. Really, a a bleak time for black politics that anti-lynching laws have basically failed over the next couple of decades. Lynching is going to reach an all-time high. Jim Crow is going to get codified. The KKK reforms in the South and in the North, as we saw in a recent episode about the Klan in Boston. You both open and close the book with Edwin Garrison's funeral. And um, you have a statement that his life in a way frames the experience of, of black independent politics. What what does the arc of that life mean to you in terms of the the politics of Boston? I think it's really sad. I think that Walker represents the the sort of hope and potential of the Reconstruction moment. You know, I think that he comes in when he's elected to office in 1866. He's really holding account, you know, the the nation in a lot of ways to say, like, if you mean what you say. By the by, what you want out of Reconstruction, you need to show it in very meaningful ways, and he continues to beat that drum and continues, you know, not to support the Republican Party that at very severe, you know, personal and professional cost. When he ultimately dies, I think it, like with him, you know, dies the hope that there is space for civil rights advocacy within electoral politics and within um, within the, the into party politics, particularly at any sort of national level. I think they, they do find some success locally, but um, that that party politics is not going to be the avenue for national transformation that they had hoped. Um, and I think that, you know, with Walker's death, the 20th century struggle is is born. We see echoes of Walker, um, echoes of James Trotter, in the work of W.B. Du Bois, in the formation of the Niagara Movement, in the formation of the NAACP, these sort of these black political independent organizations, um, indeed, I think, are the legacy of of folks like Walker. And I think we would we would do well to remember, you know, men like Walker, um, women like Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin. They have their roots um, both physically and. And politically, and in in this generation, ideologically, and ideologically in this generation, yeah. Thank you very much for doing this, for sticking it out through what's turning out to be a a rather long conversation. This is um, a time period and a topic that I didn't know much about before reading the book, so it's been very educational for me. And it's a great book for anybody like me who doesn't know much about Black politics in Boston in the late nineteenth century. Before I let you go. Is there any place our readers can find out more about you and your work? I have a website that not only talks about the book, but also some other things that I've I've written about about African Americans in Boston, sort of Black civil rights of this era. Generally, um, if you just go to www.millingtonbl.com, you can find more about it that way. There's also a link to get in touch with me. Um, you can also look at raceoverparty.com. We'll also take you there. Thank you so much for having me. This is really, it's a great opportunity to tell the story. I'm really passionate about sharing this story, not only of Boston's history, but of 
um, the life of men like Edwin Garrison Walker, who um, I think are important members of the um, Black Bostonian pantheon of heroes, um, in addition to, to being national figures. Um, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. Dr. Millington Bergeson Lockwood, thank you for joining us. Thank you. To learn more about this topic, or to get more details on Millington's book, Race Over Party, Black Politics and Partisanship in Late 19th Century Boston, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 154. We'll have links to Dr. Bergeson Lockwood's website and social media profiles, and of course, we'll have a link to buy his book. We'll also have a link to information about our upcoming event, Puritans in Print, from the Partnership of Historic Bostons. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we'd love to play your audio feedback on the show. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or just go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing a brief review. And if you do, drop us a line, and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of our appreciation. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. 